My belief in God feels like a ball balancing on a triangle. Trying to hold up the questions of life. Hi, everyone. We've arrived at the final week of our series, and I pray it's, it's been helpful for you in deepening your faith in Christ and giving you some tools maybe to have conversations with other people about these subjects that we've talked about. And, and if it hasn't been helpful, well, next week we're on to something new, so good news for you. Anyway, today we're considering the objection, I believe in God, but I'm not a fan of the church. So about 10 years ago, Newsweek uh, had a cover story that was titled, Forget the Church, Follow Jesus. And I thought, man, this headline puts into words the sentiment of uh, a growing number of Americans, including some Christians. Andrew Sullivan said it this way in the article. He said, Christianity has been destroyed by politics, priests, and get-rich evangelists. Ignore them and embrace him. Now, at the same time, we've also seen this wave of very public Christian figures deconstructing their faith for all to see. Now, listen, I think it's natural for our faith to go through seasons and ebbs and flows. I like the way Richard Rohr frames it. He, he talks about our journey of faith in three stages, where there's construction, deconstruction, and reconstruction. Construction is the, the faith that you were handed maybe by your family of origin, or if you didn't grow up with faith, maybe just experiences that shaped your initial understanding of who God is. Beliefs came kind of in a neat, neatly packaged box. And then deconstruction happens whether because you, you start to question that faith that you were handed or you start to see holes in the worldview that you were handed or there's a life experience maybe that shows you that the neatly packaged box has some, some holes in it. And then reconstruction is the process of picking up those pieces and rebuilding a new understanding of God that maybe is a little bit bigger and can hold some more conflicting views and tensions. I went through a process like this myself, and so I think it's good and necessary for many people to go through, and I think the church should welcome these conversations and provide a safe place for people to genuinely doubt and question and wrestle with their beliefs. That's part of the, the reason for this series. And it's great to see people walk through this process humbly and, and quietly and with some friends by their side. But it's also become kind of trendy for, for deconstruction to turn quickly into deconversion or, or, or just a disordered life, especially among former high-profile Christian leaders. They tend to move from, you know, Jesus made me famous, and now I want to keep the fame, but I want to get rid of Jesus. And so keep following me on Instagram, keep reading my books, keep showing up and, and listening to me on my speaking tours. And, and my new stick is going to be to slam the church and encourage as many people as possible to leave the faith with me. This isn't deconstruction, that's called apostasy, and it's not a wise thing to mess with. But listen, there are chapters of the church's history that, that we can get mad at, that, that are embarrassing, downright disgusting. Like, I don't know if you've ever done one of those family tree things like Ancestry.com, but when you trace back your lineage, and in every family, you don't have to go very far back before you run into some scandalous stuff. Like, you have a great-great-uncle who was into some whacked-out stuff. The, the family of God is kind of like that. It's no, no different than that. The church has had her dark moments. 
Religious wars, inquisitions, witch trials, racial segregation, exploitation of indigenous people, and more currently are the public church scandals, celebrity pastors and their moral failings, uh, abuses toward minors in the Catholic church, political hijacking of, of evangelicals by Republicans and Democrats alike, widespread indifference, it seems, by churches to the humanitarian crises of our day, including refugees and racism and environmentalism and materialism. And so, yes, some people come out and slander the church. And yes, sometimes it's warranted. I know even here at Grace, like we've, we've had our failures over the years. We've made wrong decisions at times. We've hurt people at times. And it's really sad for me when, when, when people walk away from the church. And so certainly the church on many occasions has failed to live up to the beautiful vision laid out by Jesus. To illustrate this, the author and historian John Dixon created a short documentary. He, he hired a, a cello and he paid for a two-hour lesson. He'd never picked up a cello before in his life. And so he practiced his heart out for five straight days because the following week he would be on stage performing the opening bars of Bach's Prelude to Cello Suite Number 1 in G Major in the gorgeous Sydney Theater. And cameras captured his performances as well as the smirks and sneers of the small little crowd that had gathered to watch him prove his point. His performance was downright awful. And what was the point? Well, he wanted to show that disregarding Christianity on the basis of the poor performance of the church is kind of like dismissing jo Johann Sebastian Bach after hearing Dixon's attempt at the cello suites. So, so if you only heard Dixon play, you would be left wondering whether Bach knew how to write a tune at all. But most of us know how to distinguish between the composition and the performance of a piece of music. And so the point is that Jesus wrote a beautiful composition and Christians have not performed it consistently well. And even if many have given up on the church, there is one key person who has not, and that's God himself. And so here's my big idea today, that despite its flaws, the church is still God's plan A. And I would add quickly, there's no plan B. So, so when you say, I believe in God, but I don't want to associate with the church, that's like saying, I'm a football player, but I don't want to be part of any team. I'm a tuba player, but I don't want to be part of an orchestra. It's a soldier without a platoon. It's a child without a family. And God created us to be part of a family because when you're part of a family, you learn very quickly that it's not about you. You're just one contributing member to this bigger thing that's going on. And even if that family is flawed and scarred, you still weren't meant to go through life as an orphan. And so today, I want to share with you three reasons to give the church a chance. The first reason is this, because Jesus loves the church. So, so when giving instructions about marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, the, the apostle Paul uses the most intimate language to describe Christ's love for his church. Listen to what he says. He says, husbands, love your wives, listen, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Did you notice all the expressions of love? He laid down his life for her. He cleansed her. He cares for her. He becomes one with her. Jesus has a passionate, protective love for his church. And just like I would tread very lightly before walking up to one of you guys and start criticizing your wife, people should also really check themselves before they say they love Jesus but hate 
his church. Because if you say you believe in God, but you hate the church, let me remind you that the God you believe in, he loves the church. And if you want to truly love God, you must also have love for who he loves. He loves the lost. He loves the hurting. He loves the broken. He loves the marginalized. He loves his children. And yes, he loves the church. It's amazing to see that despite all the bad that's been done in the name of the church, people are coming to recognize the impact of all the good as well, because the love of Christ through his church has truly made a remarkable impact on the world. So even skeptics, you know, skeptics are pointing to, to how the Bible was used, you know, to support chattel slavery in the American South. But, but they often fail to mention that nearly every movement around the globe that was created to end slavery was led prominently by Christians. Like even when the church was at its most cruel in history, reformers would pop up and they would call the church back to account. They pointed people back to the way of Christ. Ordinary believers stepping up and heeding the call to preach in new lands and to establish charities, to establish orphanages, to build hospitals, to educate the masses, to bring equality for the marginalized. Like one amazing story that's kind of in process still comes from a well-known British secular historian named Tom Holland. He's the author of many best-selling books on Rome and Persia and the rise of Islam. He's famously not a Christian, but he's in a bit of an awakening moment. He gave it full voice in his latest book called Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind. Again, he's not a believing Christian, but like many atheistic and agnostic Westerners who are honest, he's actually started to consider himself ethically Christian. Well, what does that mean? He explained it in an article that he called Why I Was Wrong About Christianity. He said this, Today, even as belief in God fades across the West, the countries that were once collectively known as Christendom continue to bear the stamp of the two millennia old revolution that Christianity represents. It is the principal reason why, by and large, most of us who live in post-Christian societies still take for granted that it is nobler to suffer than to inflict suffering. It is why we generally assume that every human life is of equal value. In my morals and ethics, I have learned to accept that I am not Greek or Roman at all, but thoroughly and proudly Christian. So again, even in the the, the secular framework, there is evidence of the love of Jesus radiating through his church and even in the ethics of whole societies. Here's the second reason to give the church a chance. It's that the church is God's chosen method to redeem the world. Again, despite her flaws and failures, the church is still God's plan A for the hope of the world. I want you to listen to Ephesians 3.10. He says this, Paul's talking that it was God's intent that through the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. That's a pretty lofty call. How many of you would agree that the rulers and authorities of this world need the manifold wisdom of God these days? And so how's that going to happen? Well, Paul says it here. He says, through the church. So I ask you, when people look at the church, when people read our posts, when people watch the lives of individual Christians, are they observing us and how we act toward one another? And are they saying, you know what? God's glory and wisdom is being revealed in how these people think and talk and act. Like, I don't know that they are. But I want it to be true. I want to remind us today, Grace Church, that in our current cultural moment, the church needs to be strong. Christ's melody remains beautiful and completely unique. And when Christians perform it, like they leave a lasting positive change on this world. And the world is longing 
for a generation of Christians who will take their faith seriously. So, so regardless of our spotty history, each generation gets the chance to put the brilliance of Jesus on display. And is there failure? Yes. Hypocrisy? Certainly. But let me again point you to Jesus and remind you that, that just because people don't live up to what they believe doesn't mean that what they believe is wrong. I'll illustrate it this way. There was an article in the Boston Globe some years ago by Stephen Nordby chronicling the annual meeting of the American Heart Association. 300,000 doctors and nurses and researchers met in Atlanta to discuss, among other things, the importance of a low-fat, low-cholesterol diet that it plays in keeping your heart healthy. Yet during the evening mealtimes, these doctors and nurses and researchers consumed fat-filled fast food such as bacon, cheeseburgers, and fries at the same artery-clogging high rate as people from other conventions would. When one cardiologist was confronted about this and asked whether or not his behavior set a bad example, he said, not me, listen, because I took my conference name tag off. So his behavior did not match his belief. His practice did not match his theory. His performance did not match the composition at all. It was hypocritical. And even though Christians do the same thing at times, like we think we can just take our name tag off and do whatever we want, this still doesn't mean that the church is hopeless. Just like the fact that heart doctors were eating cheeseburgers doesn't mean that a low-fat, low-cholesterol diet doesn't help your heart. Like the message is still true in spite of the imperfect example of the messengers. And the church is still God's chosen method to redeem the world, which means, Grace Church, that at the heart of our effort to play the composition that Jesus has given us to play, it's understanding that we are missionaries. We're in the redemption business. Second Corinthians 5 says it this way. It says, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, hear this, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, look what we are. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. He has given us the ministry of reconciliation to do everything in our power to reconcile people to God. So people often ask me, why do we do the music that we do at Grace? Why do we have lights and buildings and digital ministries and life groups and on and on? And the answer is always the same. We're on a missionary endeavor. And the church is God's plan to redeem and reconcile the world to himself. And so we have to look around our society. We have to look around our community and we ask Missionary questions. How can we present the gospel in the language of our culture? How can we equip Christians of our church to be the light of the gospel to everyone they come in contact with? Just like a missionary in Indonesia or Peru would ask, what music does this culture listen to? What is their architecture? What is their language? How do they communicate? What are their local customs? And then they craft the gospel message in a way that makes sense in that culture. That's what we're trying to do. And listen, we're having deep and transitional conversations right now at Grace among our leadership team because we're, while we're so thankful of the way that God has used the methods that we've been using for the last 30 years or so, we're also realizing that the missionary call of Jesus is forcing us to rethink. 
Like people in our culture are not drawn anymore by the bells and whistles of the 1980s and 90s churches. They're looking for community. They're looking for transcendence. They're looking for godly mentors and clear pathways to spiritual formation. They're looking for learning cohorts. They're looking to explore the deeper truths of the Bible, looking for the simplicity of faith in real life. And so as God's chosen method to redeem the world, at least here at Grace, we the church are exploring what the next chapter of ministry looks like for us. So what are the reasons to give church a chance? First, Jesus loves the church. Second, the church is his way of redeeming the world. Here's the third reason. Jesus guaranteed that the church would prevail to the end. Look at Matthew 16, 13. He says this, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Do you know where the church began? Some people say it's over in Acts 2, after Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit came and Peter preached and 3,000 people were added to the number and they began to meet in the temple courts and from house to house, but that's not right. Do you know where the church began? You know where it was born? Right here in this passage. This exchange between Jesus and Peter, that's where the church began. Jesus says, I will build my church. The word here is ecclesia. It means a gathering or an assembly. And notice there were no buildings at the time. There were no pews, no organs, no choirs, no bands, no children's ministries, no youth groups. There weren't any, even any Bibles or sermons. So, so notice where Jesus starts. He says, who am I? Who, who do people say that I am? This is the first Gallup poll. And so the disciples start lifting, listing off stuff that they've heard. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. And listen, we could do the same thing today. Like if I pose that same question, who, 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 does, who do people say that Jesus is? You, you might say, well, the Muslims say that Jesus was a prophet, that, that he wasn't crucified on a cross. The Hindu says that, that Jesus is just one of millions of gods. The Jew believes that Jesus was a great moral teacher, but he's not the Messiah, the secularist, that they might deny that Jesus ever existed at all. Plenty in our society, even religious folks would say things like, well, he's a great teacher, or he shared some good moral ideas about loving your fellow man and being good to others. In fact, CNN Don, CNN's Don Lemon said a year or so ago in an interview with Chris Cuomo, and I quote, he said, here's the thing, Jesus Christ, if that's who you believe in, admittedly was not perfect when he was here on this earth. And Chris Cuomo nodded approvingly. And I, I saw that and I thought, that's not even close to what Jesus admitted. But, but I could almost see in my mind's eye, many religious Americans nodding along in their living rooms with these guys' conversation. Yeah, a good guy, a prophet, a teacher, but certainly not perfect, certainly not God in the flesh. And these responses remind us of an important truth, that it is possible for a person to be very sympathetic to Jesus and still not understand who he really is. There are many people who admire Jesus, but do not worship him. And here's the thing, to be almost right about Jesus is to be totally wrong. 
Why? Because we're not saved by good opinions about him. We're not saved because we have good feelings about him. We're not saved because we like his moral teaching. We are saved by surrendering all that we are to all that he is, realizing his true identity. And so who do people say that I am? And the disciples respond, here, here, here's the answer to your poll questions, Jesus, happy to help. And I think for a brief moment, the disciples thought that they were done. <laughs> like after they reported the survey results, they were, they were like, okay, we've done our job. And some of you do too. Like you think you can borrow your understanding of Jesus from someone else. Well, my mom said this is who Jesus is, or my college professor said this is who Jesus is, or my pastor says, or my Sunday school teacher used to say, here's who Jesus is. And you borrow from their understanding. It's just more comfortable to quote someone else when it comes to this question, but Jesus doesn't stop. Like if he was pacing around teaching as he listened to the answers uh, from this poll of his disciples, in a flash, he spins around on his heels and he asks a personal question. He says, but who do you say that I am? This might be the most important question that you and I will ever answer in this lifetime. It is deeply personal. We all have to figure out what we're gonna do with Jesus. And to do nothing with Jesus is to do something. And then Peter comes out with it. He answers for all the disciples because he was what I call the DL, the designated loudmouth. <laughs> Whenever there was a question, Peter would pipe up, but I love it. He, he's bold. He puts it all out there. And in verse 16, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He declares the truth about Jesus. And I want to remind you that Jesus is who he is. We don't get to craft a fairy tale version and just believe that version. Like some people think, well, my Jesus only loves. He doesn't get hung up on sin or conviction or accountability or stuff like that. Here's the deal that Peter shows us. You don't get your own personal Jesus. There is a real Jesus, and then there's one you made up who's not actually real. He's not Burger King Jesus where you can have it your way. He's not Build-A-Bear Jesus where you assemble the deity that you like best. He's, there's a real Jesus and he's the one you need to decide on. And Peter's answer is very, very specific. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And I, see, I think some people read that statement and they say, well, yeah, of course, that's no big deal. Any Christian would say that same thing. Remember, Peter was the first person in human history to ever say it out loud. And it's upon this declaration that Jesus would build his church. Not buildings, not political parties, not social agencies, an ecclesia, a gathering of people who had one, and listen, only one thing in common. If you look at the diversity of the original disciples, it was only one thing. The church is built on one thing, one simple idea, one simple focus, that Jesus is who he says he is. It's the identity of Jesus. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And if that's true, it changes everything. And Jesus says, on this rock, on this truth, on this confession, on this declaration, I will build my church. Notice who takes responsibility for building churches. It's Jesus. We have beautiful buildings at Grace. We occupy them in McCain and in Harbor Creek, and we have quality architects and builders and lots of volunteers that worked on these buildings. But even though people helped with the brick and mortar part, Jesus is the one building his church. Remember, the church is people, it's not a building. He's saying, I will build my people. I will build my movement. He takes ownership of all of it, which takes major pressure off of guys like me, by the way, praise the Lord. But now look at the promise. And here's, here's what I want you to say, to see. He says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. 
The forces of hell won't overtake the church. They'll try. And listen, people usually treat this verse like it's a promise that Jesus is going to protect us from all of Satan's vicious attacks on us. But this verse is actually about Satan's inability to keep us, keep the church from advancing on Satan's kingdom, not his inability to plunder ours. And so let me ask you just a simple question. Are gates, he says the gates of hell, are gates an offensive or defensive weapon? They're defensive we don't use gates as offensive weapons. No one ever said, look out, you're being attacked by a gate. You know, somebody breaks into your house and he's like, listen, nobody move. I've got this gate. <laughs> of all the weapons of warfare, I've never heard of a scary army carrying gates. Watch out for the flying gate, the flaming gate. Like I'm just trying to make it scarier. No, a gate is a defensive weapon. Think of Lord of the Rings or any old movie where the army is trying to breach the walls of a city. They bring this big battering ram and they're trying to break down the gate, the defensive wall. And so in this scenario that Jesus is painting, where he's talking about the gates of hell, who's on offense? We are. The church is on offense. We're the ones with the battering ram. And the gates of hell will not be strong enough to hold back the church. Jesus said, I will build my church and it will advance and it will push into dark places and it will seek out injustice and it will bring light and it will be a force of grace and truth and it will run toward the world's problems and not away from them. How many of you know the world has problems? Like anyone want to argue with that statement? I've asked that question for the last 25 years of ministry and people always heartily nod their heads. Yes, we have problems. And so what I'm about to say has never, ever been more true. The ultimate answer to our problems is not education. It is not government policies. It is not programs. It is not new technology. It is not military might. It is not science. It is not being more woke. It is not being more patriotic. It's not even religion. The answer is the power and the hope of Jesus Christ. And Jesus' agent in this world is the church. The local church is the hope of this dark world. And so we need to be bold. We need to move forward because Christianity isn't about playing defense. It's about playing offense. So we need to love each other recklessly and we need to extend grace to the marginalized. And we need to resist idols like money and power and sex and politics and self-centeredness like never before. But the greatest hope is the church. And if you're skeptical about the church today, I'm begging you to give the church a chance. It is the greatest cause you'll ever devote your life to. You know, way back in the beginning, with, within the first hundred years or so of the church's existence, there was a letter that was discovered by archeologists. It was written by one government official to another, trying to explain the rise of this annoying little movement called Christianity. It's really a beautiful slice in time. It's called the letter to Diogenes. And I want to read it to you as I close and, and it just, just break it down for a second as we wrap this up. Because I believe this letter paints a picture of the church. It gets our minds back to that original composition that Jesus composed before it got all mucked up and messed up through history. It says this, Christians busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They live in their own native lands, but they live as aliens for every foreign country is to them as their native land. And every native land is as a foreign country. They marry and they have children, but they don't kill unwanted babies. They share their table with everyone, but they don't share their bed with everyone. They love everyone, but are persecuted by all. They are poor and yet make many rich. 
They are short of everything and yet have plenty of everything. They are treated outrageously but behave respectfully. They are mocked but bless in return. And when they do good, they are attacked. When they are attacked, they rejoice as if being given new life. There's a lot here, but I want you to see just a few distinguishing features of this lifestyle that, that this early church was embodying. There are, there are at least four qualities that people marveled at. One is the complete absence of racism. Do you, do you hear that? Every native land is, is a foreign country. Christians were Jews and Africans and Greeks and Romans and people that should have hated each other otherwise. They were Christians first and their race second. The, 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 the speaking and hearing of tongues at Pentecost was a reversal of the language barriers established at the Tower of Babel in the Old Testament. It's the first mark of the universality of Christianity. And the worldwide mission of the church to people from all nations began very early. Notice also the high view of life. It says they do not kill unwanted babies. In ancient times, parents had the right to throw female babies, for example, into the river. They could also just expend the lives of, of slaves and foreigners. This was all legal at the time, and Christians bucked these trends. They saw every life, no matter how unwanted, as precious. All people matter to God. Notice third, they had an unusual view of sex. It says they, they don't share their beds with everyone. In those days, the common understanding was that sex was just another appetite. When you're hungry, you eat. When you had sexual desires, you had sex. And Christians came along with this crazy sex ethic and said that sex was designed by God to, to say to another human being that I belong completely and permanently and exclusively to you. And sex must not be used to say anything else. It's a celebration of complete commitment within the context of a marriage. And this new Christian sex ethic spread through the Roman Empire like lightning. It was so unique. And when people tried this new way of sex, they couldn't believe the fulfillment that came from it. And finally, notice number four, radical generosity. It says they shared their table with everyone. They, they were marked by eye-popping generosity. People couldn't believe how quick they were to give their money away. They embraced a simple and uncluttered lifestyle. They were short of everything and they were happy with what, what they had. And these simple acts infused by the Holy Spirit changed the known world at the time. You ask, how could the Roman Empire that was so corrupt, I mean, there was slavery, there was infanticide, there was corruption, decadence, immorality, all over the place. How did a world like that turn Christian within a generation? It's because nobody could match the beauty of the lives of these Christians. Their lifestyle was stunning. Their lifestyle was startling. The culture was left wondering, what has happened inside these people to cause them to live that way? The church has done it before, guys, and we can do it again. We can get back to Jesus' original melody and sing it for our day and our time. The church is still God's plan A, and I've never in my life been more committed to the power and potential of the church. Well, we're gonna end today with a reflective question, and I believe no matter where you are, or, or are not had with your faith. Maybe you're 60 years into this Christianity deal. Maybe you wouldn't even call yourself a Christian yet. For all of us, would, would you just reflect on this question for a moment? It's where have I allowed baggage about Christianity to cloud my view of Christ? Maybe that baggage came from the media. Maybe it came from a past experience or from your family upbringing, from church history. Maybe it's from the jerk of a Christian that you know. But is it clouding your view of Christ? And what might it look like to return to a simple view, a simple obedience to Jesus? To lean into an authentic and real 
church experience with other imperfect people, yes, but with a perfect Savior that we're all chasing together? What does his original melody sound like, even though it's been performed imperfectly? Will you spend a moment reflecting on that question right now? I love you guys.